I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Arlen. Welcome back to your first million. Ah, it's the weekend. I'm actually going to take most of the weekend off from work and working. I consider working on your first million to be a combination of work and pleasure. So I decided to talk to you all right now. I am just like super relaxed though. I'm wearing my Janet Jackson uh, sweatpants that I got at the concert a few weeks ago in San Francisco. The best $70 I think I've spent this year. They were like 70 bucks. I'm like, hmm, should I get them? But then I realized I will probably wear those at some point in the day, six to seven times a week, because I love the ceremony of switching from being at work in my mind and and physically, no matter where I am, no matter if I'm at home, my home office, which is separate from my home, or if I'm on the road, I will find a time during the day to unplug and that will become me being off work. Now, of course, things are still racing in my mind and I try to disconnect from that as much as possible. Don't do a great job of that. But one of the things I do for part of the ceremony of it is I switch into my comfy gear. And my comfy gear is now the Janet Jackson incredibly soft and comfortable sweatpants. I, this is not an ad, but I, just in case you're wondering, they are available online on her at her shop online. So I'm in those. I'm in my little hoodie. I'm in my podcast room at home feeling chill and had a great week. Uh, it was a week of um, great pressure <laughs> when it comes to work. Had a lot to think about and work on. But it was really cool because, again, I got to see so many people and be refueled by that. One of the main things I did this week is I flew up to Oakland, just a day trip. I flew up to Oakland. I attended a conference called All Raise. And All Raise is, uh, I think it was like five or 600 women who were in venture capital or in the investment world. And... It was apparently twice the size of last year's, which was their their like inaugural one. And it was great. I saw a lot of people I knew, a lot of people I knew from online, and then just seeing people that I didn't know but was really proud of. And this movement that Always is part of and that Backstage My Fun is part of and just kind of getting our just due, getting to what should be normal and not uh, significant, but is still 
was pretty cool. And uh, you see the number. There's a there's a Cheddar article that came out that said that the number, the amount of funding to women led startups went up. I think it went up from twelve percent to eighteen percent. And uh, it's not a crazy amount, but you know, if you're talking about billions of dollars, it's significant. And it means that there's something positive happening because for a few years it was either stagnant or going backwards, and that's not okay. So this is all tied in together. You, you know, the more people who are writing checks who are women, the more women are going to get checks. It's not um, exactly the, the the same numbers, but it's it's pretty close enough that you can you can do the math and and think that it's reasonable to say. So that was fun. Then. Uh, at my lunch break, I went to record a video for something that's happening in December for an award that I'm getting, which is so great. And I'll talk more about that in December. And I was outdoors and we were filming and I see this really tall dude and I'm like, Hey, I know that guy. Um, I'm not really great at sports as you all may know, but, and I'm really bad at names, but I know that dude. And so I went up to him, uh, before he left and it turned out to be Andre. Uh, he goes by Iggy. I don't know if he likes that term or not. Um, I've seen uh, conflicting reports. But he's Iggy. He's from the Warriors and now uh, uh, not at the Warriors this season because they traded him. I don't really get the politics of it. But you know what? I would love to do an interview with him. So I am going to we exchanged information uh, from his uh uh, I told him a little bit about myself really quickly because I was just running up to him and he was like, oh, cool. And so he's like, here's my email address. Let's let's keep in touch. So what I would like to do is have him on this show because I uh, think his your first million story would be really compelling. So I'm going to ask him that in a couple of weeks and see if he'll come on. And uh, if he doesn't, that's cool. <laughs> and then... The same day, I mean, this was a packed day, eventful day. The same day, I went down to Stanford and I spoke at Stanford. And I spoke a couple of times. One was in their auditorium, in their entrepreneurial section. And you know what? I mean, I think most people can relate to this. You, um, you kind of knock it out the park. You do everything right. People love what, what you just done or the project you worked on or the painting that you painted or whatever, and you find the one flaw that you can't stop thinking about, that's how I feel right now. Because I was trying to say diaspora, and I call it diaspora or diaspora or something that happened in my mind on the in the moment when I was answering a question about investing in women outside of the U.S., and I, I just sort of had one of those moments where my brain just stopped and I kept going. And I know like most people just didn't care, <laughs> but it stuck with me. It like rang and haunted me for a while and it was recorded forever because of these things are. So I just wanted to let you know, I know what I'm talking about. I just had a moment. And even if, even if I'm saying it wrong now, my bad, somebody correct me. Okay. Here's another cool thing that happened. I was walking to speak. Uh, at Stanford, I was like walking through the campus and I started feeling like, wow, this is super familiar, this particular area. Because, you know, Stanford is a really sprawling campus, but this very particular path I was walking to get to where I was going to be speaking was very familiar. And then I realized, wow, I used to eat lunch over there. Okay. 
And then I realized, oh, we're going into the same doors that I used to go into. So let me tell you what it was. May 2015, I attended a two-week venture capital class at Stanford that was being held by 500 startups. It was one of the first things that got me to Silicon Valley. I talk about it quite a bit in press and, and other things. And so that would have been the same kind of time period right after that where I was staying at the airport. Uh, but I got a one-way ticket and I went there and I went to this class and it was expensive and there's millionaires there. and There's a whole story there that I talk more about in my book. It's about damn time available now for pre-order. Yes, prh.com slash it's about damn time. Get you that pre-order or you just search for it. Anywho, uh, and I went to this class, right? Well, guess what? The class was in this exact same building, like like around the corner. And then every time I was at this class, I would go in and there would be these flyers for a particular person who was going to be speaking there. And it was for students. So I never went to it, but it was like I always saw it. It was always like some major VC person that was going to be speaking there. And then a few years later, here I am speaking there. And people are seeing the flyers to come see me speak. And it's going to be recorded and it's going to be out there. So you can, you can look it up. Uh, it'll be out soon, I think. I mean, I just had this moment of so much has happened over the past five years, past four years especially. And so many things have like triggered memories and good and bad and been nostalgic for me or been heartbreaking or just touching, you know, in a way. This was one of those touching moments where I was like, wow, I can I can see how one thing happened a few years ago and this thing is like a full circle moment. So this episode is uh, Stacy London. Yes, yes, yes. What's, what's a fun time? And like, this is our first time really putting like a live interview uh, into the into the mix, which I think we'll do more of. This is the first one. Stacy London, what a perfect way to start. Last week, I mentioned if you heard last week's episode, you heard me talk about attending the Riveter Summit and then speaking there with Stacy London. And we got the audio back. Riveter was so gracious in giving us the audio. And Stacy was so gracious in allowing it to be part of this series. And we're going to play some of it for you here. And there are some t- points where the audio wasn't perfect for what we were doing. So we cut a little bit, but it's most of the conversation. Stacy, as you may or may not know, is from New York. She used to be at Vogue and at Mademoiselle. She's a stylist. She was on a show for more than 10 years called What Not to Wear. And it was on TLC. And then she went on to do other things. Like she was, she got a lot of endorsement deals. You might have seen her Pantene commercial with her hair sprawled out. She was on The View and all these hits that she did. And what we talk about is that, because that's kind of important um, towards her first million. And we talk about like losing money and spending money. She's very candid about it. She's very honest about some mistakes she made along the way, which I think people can relate to. And then we talk about what's next and what she sees as what would be helpful. And there's this really cool thing where she talks about 
cross-generational mentorship where it's not just someone who's been there, done that, and who is older mentoring someone who is younger because that's kind of construct in itself. She's saying that she has a really interesting thesis and that thesis has turned into a little bit of us putting our heads together to see what we can do about that. So you'll hear all about it in the interview. You will enjoy this one, I think, because of the energy of the audience, because Stacy is really, really interesting. You could talk to her about anything and, and get some great content from it. And because I was having a really great time, I think I will leave you there so you can take a listen. Let me know what you think, as always. I'll see you on the other side. Biggest welcome of the day to Stacy and Arlen. Hi, baby. I feel oh like God. we are the odd couple, right? We Everybody's are. like, what the hell are they doing together? But I think we should, that's like a buddy uh, cop movie or a buddy road trip movie waiting to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anybody can, out there want to fund that? Because, hey. You can teach me about like designer purses. I'll teach you how to like make money. How to, yeah. <laughs> how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it. Yeah. Sorts of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so let's, let's kind of dive in, I yeah. guess. So this is actually. Really cool because uh, I have a podcast called Your First Million. I encourage you to listen to it. If you has anybody listened to it already? Yeah, that's a good amount of people. So Your First Million, we interview. Hi, Amy. Amy's the third episode of Your First Million. <laughs> uh, we interview successful people from all backgrounds to see how they made their first million something dollars or downloads. This is actually a live recording. Like the first live recording we're doing is to talk to Stacy about it because you have an interesting, I mean, to say the least, you have an interesting background with money in particular. Yeah. And this is this panel or this conversation is about adversity. First of all, let's just set the, the stage. You started off at magazines. Yes. Vogue and Mademoiselle. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, you are. Um, I did start in magazines uh, straight out of college. I was an assistant at Vogue where you don't make a million dollars right away, uh, ever, actually. And, you know, I was making $18,000 a year for a long time. And I, I really didn't start making money until my 30s in television. Um, and I, I've always had a kind of uh, interesting relationship with money. Um, I come from an upper, upper middle class background, grew up in Manhattan, and didn't really learn anything about money, truly, uh, until I, I, I started making more of it. And then kind of had to learn quite quickly what to do with it. When I started What Not to Wear, just, just to be clear, I had $800 in a savings account, a passbook savings account <laughs> at Apple Bank. And that, that show went on to have like 10 plus seasons. To yes, it, right? it did. Yeah. And but you started that at, with $800 to your name. Yeah. In fact, the first, in fact, the first season we had um, 11 episodes and somewhere around episode eight, I was like, oh God, I don't think I can pay my rent. I don't even know if I have enough money for cat food. I remember thinking that I was not sure that I could pay for a frying pan that I desperately needed. Yeah. I, I was really struggling at that point. And then you went on to, you were on Oprah at one point. I'm just going to dart around. But yeah, dart around. Oprah. What was that like? 
I know that's probably not on topic, but <laughs> I have you here. It's like being in church. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, I yeah. remember it, this was in her old studio and we, one of the, I think it was the first time I was on, it was actually going to be a live episode. It was the end of her season. We were doing um, a fashion show about spring fashions and because we were doing it live, we had to do a rehearsal at six o'clock in the morning for a nine o'clock show. And so everybody was a stand in, right? I mean, Oprah doesn't doesn't do yeah, rehearsal. Sure. I mean, what does she need to do rehearsal for? So it was me sitting in a chair with a stand-in next to me, and we were about to start the show, and I was sitting there waiting, and I started to cry because all of a sudden, I mean, just, you know, not like sob, but I just had like tears running down my face, and I remember the cameraman going, <laughs> you okay? And I just was like, how did I get here. Because you were in the church of Oprah and it it hit you. I mean, I was like, I'm going to be sitting next to God. (laughs) What happened? How did this happen? And, you know, you kind of have to, I mean, you have to pinch yourself. Yeah. And, you know, being on television at that time in 2002, that was the, that was the start really of reality television becoming a thing. And it afforded me an unbelievable career. I mean, I didn't say no to anything because I thought it was going to be this small window of opportunity. And then I, I had left magazines. I got fired from Mademoiselle when I was 30, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. If you haven't been fired, I highly recommend it. Um, really? It's slightly a privileged sentence. Uh, okay. I, I will, that, that, yes. that, that's fair. But I say that because you do need doors to close in in order to find doors that are open. And I truly believe that if you don't have roadblocks, you really can't push through in other areas. Um, and you may have found that in a different way, but I do think that if you don't have people saying no to you, you don't look for yeses. Yes. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I think that's why, I mean, I if I had as many dollars as I had no's in the last 39 years, I'd have your first million. You pro- you probably have more than a first million. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, would you would you do television again? Yeah, you I would. would, but I would do it differently. Okay, um, it's it? a different time, and I say this a lot. I think television is dying, right? A, a slow death, maybe, but it's definitely in a coma, um, and I don't know if it will be revived in the same way. It certainly can't be revived in the way of the how-to days of reality. Um, what about a Netflix like the the Queer Eye fellows? Well, I think that's really something that was a big surprise, right? When I heard they were reviving Queer Eye, I thought, oh, God, you know, this is going to be a disaster. But they did it the right way. Yeah. They did it with a new, younger generation, and they did it on a different they didn't do it on a cable. Traditional television, right? They did yes. it streaming, and they, did, they took on the issues of today. They took on, you know, racism. They took on um, money and disparity. And they took on um, homophobia. And they took on the issues that matter to a new generation. So here's what I think as you're a new agent. (laughs) We're going to have you do a guest spot on the new Queer Eye. We're going to make that happen because we're putting it out into the the universe. And... (laughs) And then that will turn into a spinoff that is you coming back and uh, working with a new group of uh, 
of experts. Well, what I would like, and to, to put this out into the universe, is I, I don't disagree that there should be a spinoff, but I do think that there needs to be a show about women of my age. Thank you. And Arlen, and Arlen should be on it, obviously, because we need... I'll, I think I need to be. I, I, Let's we be need, honest. Because women of my age need women of your age to be our financial advisors. Okay. I, I truly believe that women of my age don't just feel invisible, like we used to say in fashion. We are starting to feel irrelevant in a world of technology that we do not understand. And that is causing us to have financial crises where our jobs are disappearing. We don't understand when industries are disappearing and we don't know how to make millions anymore. And while I have had a successful career, I am starting to feel like I don't know what my future is. Wow. And that is the truth. That's it. That's the pitch. Okay, let's do it. I'll, I'll produce, I'll co-produce it. Fantastic. We've got this. Co-producing credit. And I think, <laughs> I'm so happy we're having this discussion right now. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Derivator. Yeah. But I truly believe that women, and, and this is maybe over 40, but certainly I turned 50 this year. I, I am starting to see that there needs to be this intergenerational mentorship where women for the first time my age can't just be saying, oh, oh dear, you know, let me, let me help you. Just my years of experience. Our experience is irrelevant in a new world. That's right. You've talked about that you don't think mentorship necessarily has to be an older person mentoring a new, uh, younger person. I don't think it's possible anymore. Right. I mean, but it's a mixture though. Yes, you. it has to be a mixture. In, in terms of years of experience, sure. You know, we may be able to talk about life experience in a different way, but I, this is the first time we are seeing a tectonic shift between the, the linear path since the industrial revolution to now. I mean, you know, you, you, you were born, you grew up, you went to some kind of school, what, whatever level of education you went to, you got a job, you maybe you got married, you had some sort of family structure, and then you worked until you died. There is literally, we don't live the same way, we don't eat the same way, we don't work the same way, we don't date the same way. Nothing is the same. Nothing is guaranteed in the same way. We are more accepting than ever of different lifestyles and, uh, you know, the dumpster fire that is happening in the world. I promise you, this is the death rattle of the white man and the patriarchy. It is coming. I know that you may say you don't Sorry, feel white guys. Yeah. I mean, and then you may not feel it yet, but I am in my bones. I feel it. I see it coming, and, you know, I, I mean, I hope they're ready for it. Oh. Um, but, but what I see happening is this new world structure, which you are doing. You are the catalyst. And this, to me, is a whole new world order we have to be ready for. And I'm so excited, but I don't feel prepared. Mm. I really don't. And it's the first time that I, I am looking to a new generation to help navigate the second half of my life. This is fascinating. I think we have a company, we have a television show, and a movement all in that. So as long as I can co-produce it, I'm, I'm down. 
I'm all for it. I mean, you know, listen, I, I want you to guide the way because I'm willing to admit that all of these things are true for me. I'm willing to admit that I don't know the way. This episode is brought to you by me, Arlen, the host. And I'm going to use this time to promote my book, It's About Damn Time, which is now available in pre-order. It comes out May 5th, 2020. You can order it now at prh.com slash it's about damn time. All pre-orders will reach you on the day that it comes out. Thanks. Well, let's talk a little bit, though, about because people who only know the part about you being on the show, meeting Oprah, because I've made that a point now, (laughs) they may not understand the last few years what that has looked like for you. So that context of adversity, because like you said before, we have we're we come from very different backgrounds. We do. Uh, We have a different world. I mean, we see things from a different lens. I think we have similar worldview. But, and we have different versions of adversity, but I've heard you um, almost apologize for your adversity as if yours is somehow less than mine because mine. Well, I'm, I'm aware of white privilege. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be apologist for it. I, I just want to acknowledge it because I, I think to, do, to not do that is, is a grave mistake. And I also want to admit to, I mean, I I don't want to discount the amount of success that I've had. You know, What Not to Wear led me to have uh, ad campaigns for Pantene, for Woolite, for Lee Jeans, uh, for uh, Dr. Scholl's. And yeah, I made a shit ton of money. And it's part of the, you know, I'm I'm actually really proud of that. (laughs) When I say I didn't say no to anything, I had a contract with with Today Show, with Access Hollywood. I mean, I didn't say no because I was so afraid that this whole magical world was going to, you know, the window of opportunity was going to close. But I I also... Let's talk about a little bit, too, because... Sometimes I've heard from, and let's, we, we're family, right? We can be real with each other. Uh, there are a lot of white people here. <laughs> so, and I have, <laughs> and I talk to several, um, and, and I'm married to one, you know. And I have often had people, whether they're white or not, but they, they've had more money growing up or they have means, um, either blatantly apologize for it or allude to apologizing for it. And I have to stop them immediately because there's so much power in your privilege. And to apologize for it is to sort of let go of that power that you have, whether it was something that you made happen or not, you have it. And now it's, I think, your duty to spread that around, to share it. So instead of apologizing for it or feeling ashamed for it, because I, I do feel from some people there's like this deep shame of, I didn't do this myself and I have it. And they kind of want to shed themselves of that. I think there's a lot more power in wielding it mm-hmm. and in, in sharing it and, and, and making it available for those of us who didn't necessarily have that. I completely agree. That's why I... I made a point of saying I don't apologize. Um, and also, just to be clear, I did grow up with money. Um, but my 
but my, my mom lost all of her money. So uh, all the money I made, I made on my own. Yeah. I do not apologize for any of that $800 in my savings account. That was mine. Um, how, how did the events, and I don't want to, um, bum you out. So tell me if there's anything we shouldn't talk about, but yeah. how did the events in the recent years, cause you've had a lot happen. Yeah. The last five years. And I have talked about this quite openly. I mean, I see, I see no reason to kind of be like, I, I it's nothing that I'm ashamed of. I mean, there's adversity in people's lives and the last five years have been really difficult. It started with, um, popping my hamstring in a very bizarre trainer accident, <laughs> which, I, I, I won't even get into. He threw me up in the air. It wasn't my trainer. It was a joke. Ha ha. And the way he caught me, I popped my, my hamstring. It was awkward. And, um, and I wound up needing surgery. And that was the first surgery. And then um, about a year later, I started having... I'd always had uh, back problems. I, I had been going for steroid shots for a long time, always had kind of lower back problems. And they started to get more severe, and I wound up needing pretty severe spine surgery. My lower back is titanium. I consider that to be one of my superpowers now. But at the time, I was in so much pain that I, I sort of slid onto that operating table like it was home base a sports reference that you'll rarely get from me. Um, and I was like, fillet me like a fish. I do not care, but I cannot be in this kind of pain anymore. I wish I'd thought a little bit harder about that because the um, rehab was excruciating. And I have said this, I wrote an article about it for Refinery29. One of the things is that even as I started to get better, um, it was an 18-month rehabilitation process. Even as I started to get stronger, I really started to cognitively understand that there was a lot of foreign material in my body. I got clinically depressed. I, I started to just be paralyzed with this whole concept, even as, as I started to be able to walk. And I had four different back braces. I mean, the first one looked like a jet pack. It was just no clothes worked with Making it. a note for the, for the Netflix show. Yes, great, fantastic. But it just didn't work with anything, which was also, I mean, just everything about it was frustrating to me. Um, did, did that, it seemed that it manifested itself, that pain manifested itself in the really, in my view, intriguing way. Yeah. What was that? Because you could have turned to like something, but what did you turn to? I turned to shopping. Um, for useless things, not and that fun to me things. is if you, at first blush on the surface that sounds kind of um, petty or yeah not, trivial. Trivial is the word. Yeah, but it's 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 something that is well. What, it was it started when I couldn't really move, right? I mean, and there's only so many Netflix series you can watch, and there were there were only so many things that I could do, and then I started kind of living in this fantasy world of I'll buy this for the future, for when, for I'll get this because when I can dress, you know, in high heels or when I can have this thing or when I can travel or it became this sort of fantasy life of when in the future, in the future, in the future, um, because the present reality felt so constricting and it it really, it really was an, an interesting game that I was playing with myself. And, and, and at the time, I wasn't even aware that yeah. that's what I was doing. It sounds doing. like you were self-soothing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And believe me, it's like anything else. I could have been eating chocolate all day long. I could have been there. Right. I mean, I mean, Feel you know, or I could have been doing drugs or I could, I mean, you know, it's like any addiction. It was really to escape the pain and of the present. You spent a lot. I, you know, okay. I want to be clear about this. The, the article that I wrote about uh, this for Refinery, they really loved that hook of that first line, you know, the day, um, whatever it was, the day that I went to my accountant, the day that I like, you know, stopped wearing my brace or something was the day my accountant told me that I was going broke. The second sentence is the one that nobody seems to remember, which is like, well, I don't mean broke, broke, right? How many people know what broke means? Exactly. Like broke. Like $800 in your passbook account still isn't broke. Uh Uh-uh. That's a lot of pot pies. Right. (laughs) And that's not even what I meant by broke, broke. Okay. So in context, I really felt afterwards very unhappy with the way that that hook sentence was perceived. My accountant was like, stop spending so much fucking money. You're being stupid. And but in context, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be homeless. I wasn't even, you know, close to that. He was like, stop buying shoes. Big fucking deal. He was just saying, stop it. And, and I how really, did you stop? How did you stop yourself? If I, someone is because, going through something like that right now where they're addicted to something to help them make it through, how did you stop that? Uh, because my accountant said stop. You're, someone had to come in and tell you that. Right. You he was like, mess. check yourself. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an idiot. I was like, wow, that was the reality check I needed. Somebody who was managing my money said, you are making a mistake here. And I thought, oh, okay, this is stupid. And there were other things going on. I I was screwing up in my relationship, which ended. I mean, there were a lot of things that I was breaking. Mm -hmm. And it sort of took something as realistic as I'm not working and I'm I'm spending my money. Stop. And I really took that seriously. I started to make an effort to get really strong. I could do 100 burpees, P.S., I was holding a three-minute plank. Shut up. I can't do that, and I have had no surgery. Right? I mean, I was, like, killing the game. And then my dad got really sick. And I swore to myself, you know, listening to those ladies before us, like, self-care, self-care. I was going to take care of myself. But I stopped doing everything and anything to take care of my father. And I spent all of last summer taking care of him with with my stepmom and my sisters who were both working when they could, but I stopped doing anything. And he was so sick. And and then he died. And I was um, working on a project that I had to go straight back into. I was committed uh, contractually. I had to travel with someone that I was styling. And I was eating two-pound bags, that's the party size, of caramel M&Ms. That is every, a party. It really is. Every day. Every day. Took them with me to Paris, took them with me to London, took them with me to L.A. Every day. I will just say, in Paris, we were staying in really fancy hotels. I woke up at like 3 a.m. and I was so sad that I was like eating them in bed and I fell asleep like with them in my mouth. I woke up to an M&M massacre. <laughs> I'm not sure they're ever going to let me These back. These scenes write themselves. <laughs> I don't know if they're ever going to let me back in that hotel. It was, it was terrifying. But um, again, grief is, that kind of grief is something that I have never 
experienced. I mean, my dad was my biggest cheerleader and a very, if not my best, certainly one of my closest friends. And losing him set me back. And I just, that, that, that was in, um, this Sunday, it'll be a year. One year. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I've gained 30 pounds and haven't worked at all. Yeah. So now I'm really, now I'm, now I am starting to lose money. Well, so, so the next chapter then is what happened next, what happens next, right? Right. And I think. Well, that's why I'm here with you. Yeah. Because well, now we're going to make a show and we got to make some millions. Yeah. I think we could, we could definitely have that conversation and. Um, but can we, I, I just want to go back. Yes. A little bit. Cause this has been a lot about me. Right. And I do want to talk about where you started because um, Emma, who introduced us, told me all about you before I did any research or heard yeah. anything about you. And she said that when she met you, you were sleeping in the San Francisco airport. Actually, she met me before that happened. Uh, we've known each other for several years. She was one of my first investments after I got the fund. Yes, Wild Fang. Uh, um, but she said that you really didn't I was, have a place I was, to live. No, I, w- I, was, uh, I was broke. That's what you call broke. Real broke. And like no chicken pot pies. Yeah. I mean, no, I, you know, it was based on the amount of chicken pot pies I could uh, make happen for myself. Um, but yeah, I was, I, I grew up kind of in a, in a place where I, we didn't have money. And so I started working really young and then grew up and also didn't have those tools to figure out what I was supposed to do. And I, I think a big part that many, we don't talk about a, a lot is credit. Yeah. So I started off with bad credit at 18, mm. impossibly. And the reason that happened is this, this happens in a lot of, um, it happens in some black families, and I won't make it as blanketed as that, but in some black families, your credit is used before you're really supposed to be using credit by a family member. And that's what happened in my case. And I was given the choice of, you can wipe the slate clean, or you can wipe the slate clean, but you'll have to file charges against this person in your life. And that was not an option for me at 18. So started off, I think that's a big part of it. I think credit is something that we don't talk about. And then just not having the tools and never really, um, and also being a little odd, you know, as an odd kid. I talk about that more in my upcoming book, It's About Damn Time, that's available in pre-order right now. Everybody, everybody in this room, pre-order. I would love you to. I'd love you to pre-order. Um, it's about damn time. Yes. And also because pre-orders do go towards the bestseller list. Just they FYI. do. For that first week, they count. So I have an entire episode of Your First Million that talks about it because I didn't know that before. But anyway, a lot, I of, did. A lot of years passed. Two, two books on the bestseller list, right? Yeah. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of things happened years past. Um, uh, girl, you managed a Norwegian punk band, which I thought was pretty Yeah, cool. I, I tour managed a Norwegian pop punk band uh, in my early 20s, because that's normal. <laughs> I don't know why you're giggling, but that's what we all do. And that's a whole thing. That was a whole experience. And basically everything that I have, almost everything that I've done in my kind of adult life, I've built. I've built I didn't see it, so I, and I wanted it, so I built it, and it was always in a wonky way and never really in a financially secure way because I didn't really start off that way or know how to do it. And then all of the experiences and experience that I had sort of uh, converged one magical moment. And now the work that I do at Backstage, where we invest 
our money, the money that we raise little by little um, and our resources and our time, that work where that, those investments are in underestimated founders, as we call them. So people in this room, uh, 130 plus now. I mean, can we just get no, no, like a round of applause? No, 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 no. 130 <laughs> underestimated. That's yes. just the beginning. There is one uh, white male, straight white male led company in the mix. And uh, we, we... How'd they get there? I was, I was feeling charitable that day. <laughs> and, but that work, that work that we do and that I get to do uh, every day is every, every bit of that experience coming together. And it is truly what I feel is my calling at this point and spreading that and, and however uh, way we do that. And it, it took... Um, you know, we, I call it two and a half years, but it was probably three, four years of trying to get that first $25,000 check. Uh, and and, and every, every moment of it since then has been an uphill climb. But it's also worth it in every measurable way. I just wanted to say that when one of the things that Emma said to me was that when she met you and you said, I'm going to do this, she said, either this woman is totally going to do this, or she's batshit crazy. That there, sounds like Emma. Right. And that it was one or the other. And that one of the things that we were talking about was this idea that being a black queer woman, there was this 50-50 chance. And that if you had been a straight white male, somebody would have invested that $25,000 right away. And that's the presumption that needs to change. Yeah, and I think when people hear that, especially straight white men, they're like, where's my check? Because I don't get to get that by walking in the room like this. But it is, it is there is certainly, um, like we talked about before, this hierarchy and this, yeah. these odds that change in your favor depending on what your background is. And it's up to us to... Um, to really take advantage of where our privilege, where we land on the privilege scale, because I certainly have privilege. We all have someone has everybody has some sort of privilege. Just take advantage of it and and use it opportunistically. That's like you know the the takeaway from it. I wish we had more time because I wanted to do uh, audience Q and A. I know. I mean, well, we've got a minute. Yeah, well, we have a minute. Let's somebody ask us anybody a question. Quickly, have a. a Why did you get fired? From Me? Mademoiselle? Well, a new editor came in and they usually clean house, but the woman who fired me ran Mademoiselle into the ground and closed it, so fuck her. <laughs> One more. We have 30 seconds. Yes. How did I get out of the airport? I certainly walked. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I, it, it, once I had that first uh, investment capital, the same angel investor, Susan Kimberlin, I'll say her name forever, gave me an additional amount of capital to start the actual office of it. So that, that day, I never, I've never had to be homeless or without a, a place to live since that moment in September 2015. All right. What, last one. So what is the one piece of advice that you would give a woman stepping into the uh, Mm. Yeah, it's, I, so the advice for any woman who's walking into a VC room. So you're probably, you've probably heard this before, and you probably, it probably sounds trite, but it, it, I'll always go back to it. And it is to be authentically yourself. And there's even conversation happening right now on Twitter about this, uh, because for some women, that is just not easy to do. But to me, it, I, I was that person 
The same person 10 years ago, five years ago, I hopefully will be the same person in a few years with a little bit more wisdom and experience. But that's what I'm here for. for yes. Show. But there's no there's absolutely no check or amount of money that is worth losing dignity, losing sleep, losing you, who you are um, to get in that moment. And in the times where I have strayed from that core thinking have been the ones that they, they haunt me today. They are the most difficult people to work with because I, I slightly changed that core belief. So my advice is to be you, stay true to yourself and sort of recalibrate and refurbish what your uh, leverage is because it may be different than what you think it is. That's it. Okay. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm doing a little experiment, as you may have seen online recently. I want to incentivize you to leave a comment on Apple Podcasts and also give you a little gift for doing so, for taking the time out. I want you to leave an authentic review for your first million on Apple Podcasts. And when you do so, send me a message. You can DM me on Instagram. Arlen was here. A-R-L-A-N was here on Instagram. You can reach out to me by email or you can DM me on Twitter. Same handle. Arlen was here. Let me know your t-shirt size, your mailing address, and your full name. And let me know that you filled out a review for your first million on Apple. Right now it's for Apple only. And once you do that, we'll take your information down and we'll get a shirt out to you over the next few days. All right, everybody, looking forward to seeing you in those shirts. Hey, it's Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen Was Here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N Was Here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. You can also pre-order my first book. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order it at your local indie bookstore. Please do that. Feel free. And online where books are sold, where, where, where great books are sold. If you want to go to a specific link, you can go to prh.com slash it's about damn time. All together. No, no spaces, no slashes, nothing. So prh.com slash it's about damn time and it'll give you a list of places you can pre-order the book and pre-ordering is huge the more pre-orders the bookstores see the more copies they will order and potentially more copies that will get sold and exposed and seen if you're thinking about getting the book but you're going to wait until after it comes out i encourage you to pre-order it may 5th 2020 is the actual date So you have plenty of time to grab it, but try to do it between now and then. I'll see you online in the meantime. If you are interested in advertising on your first million, go to yfmpodcast.com and click on contact. You can have yours truly read your ad, which is, I know, lovely, or you can send me your own ad. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.